0: We are an incredibly blessed but easily dissatisfied people. We're incredibly blessed, very easily dissatisfied. A sense of dissatisfaction with our work, with our house, with our spouse, with our kids, with our stuff, can easily creep in to our everyday life. And if we're not careful, dissatisfaction can take over our life. And the question I want to wrestle with is this. How do we deal with the discontent that stirs within us? Because because we are people who wrestle deeply with discontent. So so how should we deal with it rightly? If you're here as a follower of Jesus, what's the right God-honoring, Jesus-following way to deal with all the dissatisfaction that stirs up in us from time to time? What do we do with it? In particular, I want to know... How we get to a place that, that Paul describes. Paul was a pastor and a church planter in the earliest moments of the Christian church, that Paul describes in the book of First Timothy, where he says this. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, in other words, Paul is describing this, this kind of mindset of satisfaction where you realize that you are you are in God's hand, you are extremely blessed and that you are wealthy in the things that matter most. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How do we journey towards that? That's what we're going to talk about in this series. Now, if if you don't happen to believe me that that discontent is something that we, particularly in the American West, wrestle with, um, I have some anecdotal evidence to to share with you. Uh, So so for example, uh, first, uh, there was a, a poll done by Gallup just a couple of years ago, of 23 to 38-year-olds who comprise the largest section of the American workforce, 23, 24 to 38 years old, and asked them how many times they had changed their job in the last year. And 21% of them had changed their job at least once in the last year. Now, that might seem like nothing, but compared to their, their older colleagues, it was three times higher. And it was much higher than previous generations at the same stage in life. So a lot of job change happening in the bulk of the American workforce. And then not too long ago, CNBC uh, released a series of articles about American debt. And they shared the fact that there is $38,000 of personal debt for every man, woman, and child in the United States. That's, that's not counting mortgage debt. They took that out of it. $38,000 of personal debt for every man, woman, and child in the United States. Uh, now, the bulk of that, a good portion of that, is due to student loans. We hear a lot of talk about that these days. But what they found, and this was fascinating to me, that 41% of that $38,000 of, of debt assigned to every single person, if you divided it evenly, 41% of that $38,000 is due to what they called the pursuit of personal pleasure, personal care, and personal passions. 41% the pursuit of passion, care, and joy. And then lastly, as you know, anxiety and depression is on the rise in this world, in particular in really wealthy nations. We've talked about this before here at St. Mark, but the, uh, the Journal of American Medicine released some in- interesting st- statistics just a couple of years ago. They said that in very poor nations, the poorest of nations, that 1.6% of the population could be diagnosed with clinical depression or anxiety at some point in their lifetime. 1.6% of the population in the poorest of nations. In median income nations, it's 2.8% of the population could be diagnosed with clinical depression or anxiety in their lifetime. But in the wealthiest of nations, guess which one we are? We're the wealthiest of the wealthy nations. 5% and higher are diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety at some point in their lifetime. And their finding was this, that the more affluent a society becomes, the more they have the privilege to wrestle with the question of what do I want, what do I need, what should I pursue, what do I deserve, that mental health begins to erode. All of this to me is just further proof that that though we are spending lots of money, in a lot of cases money we don't have, and though we're jumping around the corporate ladder, and though we're pulling every lever we can possibly find to maintain some peace and joy in our life, we are not a very peace-filled or joyful people. We are easily dissatisfied, and we we are often discontent. What about you? Is there an area of your life in which you are dissatisfied right now? Where you look around and go, there's got to be more than this. I deserve more than this. I want more than this. I need more than this. Maybe I'll just upend and change all of this. Is there an area of your life in which you are wrestling with that? Now, I want to be clear. Not all discontent is bad. I'll make a broad distinction just for kind of the sake of our conversation. There is there's a distinction between holy discontent and like unholy discontent. Let's just put it that way. Holy discontent um, is tied to the fact that inside of every single human being there is an innate sense of right and wrong that Christians would say is, is instilled in us by God. Uh, Jesus talks about it like a hunger and a thirst for things to be right, for righteousness, for things to be in step with the ways and the will of God. And we all kind of have a sense when we look out into the world and we see something that's really broken or really bad that it's out of step with with how the maker would want things to be. And though that sense of right and wrong is clouded by our own sin and our own struggles, it's there in each one of us. And every once in a while, when we see something horrible, some injustice, some inequity somewhere, there is this thing that stirs up inside of us that says, that's not right. This should be just, that should be equal, this should be fair, that should be fixed. They're hurting, we have to do something about it. That kind of discontent that longs to right wrongs and align them with what we know to be the will of God, that's that's what I would say is holy discontent. It's driven by what Christians would say is divine virtue. And it often results in, in blessing for someone other than the person who's feeling discontented. They look at the world and say, this is not the way things should be. We were made for more than this, and so let me fight for justice or equality or for this person to be helped or rescued, whatever it is. It's that kind of holy discontent that drove Martin Luther King Jr. to fight for equal rights. It's what drove protesters in different seasons or eras and circumstances to fight for, for something that truly benefits mankind. It's what drove you to speak up for your friend when they were being abused or overlooked. There is such a thing as holy discontent. But that's not what we're talking about in this series. But we're talking about the kind of unhelpful, often unholy discontent that stirs within us. And here's, here's how I would define that. Unhelpful discontent is this. It's a sense of dissatisfaction that is divorced from a higher good. It's not really driven by things to be in line with God's will. And it's ultimately grounded in greed. It's not really driven by anything higher. It's, it's really just tied. It's sole motivation is this question of, do I deserve more and how do I get it? That's unhelpful, unholy discontent. It's divorced from divine good and, and really driven by greed, just a hunger and a thirst for more. And it tends to do more harm than good when it's indulged. So, for example... I've told you before about my love of technology. You've probably seen it, like, on my wrist or in my hand or the phone that's in my pocket. I I love technology. In particular, I I love all things made by Apple. I'm one of those weirdos. I love all the things that they make, so much so that that I I really can't watch uh, the keynote addresses that they give when they unveil new products because if I see the new product, I will want the new product. Like, if they show me the new thing, I will have to have the thing, and I will suddenly hate all the things that I have. And I have all of the things. I have all the things. So like the new phone that came out, like I have to keep myself from really looking at it. There it is. Because if I stare at it too long, I won't like my phone. So just as an exercise right now, look at this thing. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's the iPhone 11 Pro Max. It goes by another name. It's also known as the phone that Matt doesn't have yet. But it's got three cameras, three cameras. My phone has two cameras. That's one less camera. That's a third less camera. And I loved my phone. I loved my phone until now. (laughs) My life seems empty and devoid of purpose until now. that's what i'm talking about that kind of discontent that is disconnected from any kind of divine good and really really is tied if you're really digging into it—to a bit of greed a desire for just more for yourself that's really the only motivation and it manifests itself in stuff and in work and in relationships and in how you see your body and and everything it manifests itself all over the place where do you see that kind of discontent rearing its ugly head in your life where now, now the title of this sermon is The Root of Discontent. So we're going to talk about this for several weeks. So what I really want to get at is, is where all this comes from, this unholy discontent that rears its head in our lives. And that's why Stephanie so awesomely read Genesis chapter 3 earlier, because this really gets at the root of discontent. I want to go back to it. Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you have a Bible, you can take it out and follow along with us. Genesis chapter 3. There should be one somewhere in the back of the pew in front of you. Or if you have a smartphone, if you have the iPhone 11, you can take that out. You can tap on the Bible app and open this up. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at just the first five verses. Now the serpent, this is a reference to Satan For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like him, knowing good and knowing evil. So Adam and Eve are our spiritual ancestors. And they are created and they enter into this world of complete perfection. Uh, They are in perfect relationship with God. They're in perfect relationship with each other and then all of creation. Uh, It's called the Garden of Eden, but one of the ways I've often referenced it is that it was a garden of yes, where the answer to everything was yes, except for one thing. There was a tree of no in the middle of the garden of yes. And in this paradise, if they wanted to climb a mountain, build a house, go for a swim, the answer was, yeah, sure, have at it, yes, yes, yes. But there was one thing that was no. And Satan, being who he is, he likes to ruin good things. He slithers in, and his goal is to disrupt this whole thing. And so what does he do? He gets them to take their focus off of all the things they do have and focus on the one thing that they don't have. And here's how he does it. He asks a question, and then he, he makes a statement. His question is this. Did God really say that you couldn't do this? And then his statement is essentially this. He's holding you back. Did God really say? Want to know why he said that? He's holding you back. He's holding you back from things you want, things you need, things you deserve. He's just being selfish. He doesn't want you to have more. And that, that, that question and that statement, those are the seeds planted in the soul of humanity that take root and become discontent. Discontent at its heart are these two things, and we see it in Genesis 3. It is a doubt of God's goodness and a desire for more. It's a doubting of God. Can He really be trusted with your well-being? And a desire for more. Someone or something is holding you back. Satan's whole desire was to get Adam and Eve wrestling with, can I trust him, and what if I had more? And once those two questions took root in their heart, it then led to rebellion that led them to do the one thing God told them not to do. And then as a result, they're booted out of the Garden of Yes, out of the Garden of Eden, and their relationship with God is severed. And it's been that way ever since, which is why you and I were born into this world longing to know the one who made us, needing to know our Creator. With, as Augustine says, this, this heart that is restless until it rests in Him And we try to cure that restlessness in all kinds of things that will not satisfy. We're born into a world where something deep inside of us knows we belong in the garden, back in relationship, but we're not. And we have that same seed planted in our heart where we are easily drawn into doubting God and desiring more and more and more. Which is why Jesus... When he shows up on the scene, he speaks to this. He, he speaks to you and to me. He speaks to our doubting of God and our desire for more. So in, in the gospel of Luke alone, you see two examples of this. So in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus is speaking to your doubting of God's promises that sits inside your heart. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's saying, look, you're a mess, And yet, you know how to be good to your kids. God's not a mess. Do you think he's going to be good to you? Yeah. And then speaking to our constant desire for more, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Just a fancy church word for needing more stuff. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. When you water those seeds of discontent, this doubting of God and this desire for more, it takes root and then it manifests itself in all kinds of destructive behavior. And and as a pastor, I've had the heartache and the pain of having a front row seat to a lot of good people, people who are blessed, people who have a lot of things to be thankful for, just ruining their lives because they've gotten obsessed with the question of, can I really trust God with my own happiness and joy? And there's got to be something I'm missing out on that I desperately deserve. And so they take a career that is largely going well, or a family that is beautiful and a great blessing, or a spouse that loves them sacrificially and fully, or possessions that on the grand scale of things make them some of the wealthiest people in the world. And they push all those things to the side because they've convinced themselves that all those things and this thing is holding them back. And they deserve something better than everything that's already in their possession. That's what doubt and desire do when they're unchecked. And and there's always some warning signs that you've been watering the seeds of discontent a little too much. Those seeds planted in us from Adam and Eve, doubt God, desire more. You've been watering them, indulging them a little too much. Here's the warning sign. You find that your peace is rattled And your pace is increasing. Now what I mean by that is when you think about your work or your spouse or your possessions, you look at it and you have this deep sense of dis-ease. This does not work for me. I don't feel okay when I look at this, 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 or this. I don't feel okay. And you can't put a really good reason on it. There's no like divine initiative behind it. It's just, I don't know that I'm cool with this anymore. And so you increase your pace trying to fix it tweak it, adjust it, find something to replace it. It rattles your peace and increases your pace. And then before you know it, you're on like this treadmill of discontent where you are, you're constantly loathing what you have and looking for something better. Or you are troubled by something you're experiencing for no really good reason, and you're kind of tweaking your life and turning all the knobs, trying to increase your joy to no avail. Because here's the thing about a treadmill. If you don't feel like you're burning enough calories, you just kick up the speed. And if you still don't feel like you're burning enough calories, you kick up the speed until finally you're running at a full pace. But because it's a treadmill, you're going nowhere. And that's Satan's great trick. Shake your peace. It's not good enough for you. Increase your pace. Fix it. Find something better. But produce nothing as a result. Nothing that puts your heart at ease nothing that makes your life substantially better. In fact, it ends up doing more damage than anything else. So what do you do? When you feel the temptation to go there and get on that treadmill of discontent, I think you have three options, okay? Only one of them is the right one, by the way. I'm going to give you three. Only one is the right answer. Hint, it's the third one. So the first thing you can do when you feel the seeds of doubting God's goodness and desiring more, you can just, like, ignore it. And some of, some of you are really good at this. Anything you're feeling, you just push it down. I don't have feelings. They're all the way down in my feet. And you just push it down and push it down and pretend it doesn't exist. But, but discontent is like cancer in this sense. Like, ignoring it is not a treatment plan. You just give it space to grow, and it metastasizes. So so. You, you can ignore it, but understand it's not going anywhere. It's going to grow. Or you can just indulge it. Some people, when they feel just a hint of discontent, they, they say, that must be right, and they say yes to it, and they dive right into it. So whether it's work, it's, it's their possessions, it's their relationships, they feel some discontent, and they're out. They change, they, they change things right away. You probably know some people in your life who are like this. They live a very erratic existence. They always have a new career, a new car, or a new companion. Because the second they start to feel some discontent, they say, that I have to obey that. And they just indulge it completely. The, the problem with indulging discontent so much is that it causes a lot of damage to you and to others. Because change, change, even good change, always comes at a cost. When you change something in your life, it comes at a cost potentially financially. It comes at a cost in a relationship. It comes at a cost in your career. There's no such thing as change that doesn't cost somebody something. It always does. And so people who are indulging their discontent, who have some commitment issues in like every area of their life, they end up damaging themselves and also damaging other people because they're constantly extracting cost from all these important places of their life. And they end up like a stunted human being because they've never stuck with anything or anyone long enough for it to grow and mature or for them to grow and mature. The last, and I think the best option you have when you feel it stirring within you is to investigate it. Here's my encouragement. You need to doubt your discontent. Doubt your discontent. When it starts to stir in you, when you start to think, I don't know if this relationship is everything I need it to be, or I don't know if this job is is really the, the one thing I was made for. I don't know if I'm satisfied with, with, this, with this body, with this house, with this phone, whatever it is. When it starts to stir in you, investigate it. Doubt it. Ask some questions about it. Where is this coming from? Is, is this tied to anything divine and good and holy? Is this, is this potentially some holy discontent? Is there some injustice I'm going to address here? Some abuse I'm going to stop here? Some wrong I'm going to right here? Or is it just hollow discontent? in the end, it's just me being a sinful human being, ungrateful and unsatisfied. Which is it? Pray about it. Ask God to help you with it. Give you wisdom to deal with it. And here's the really important thing. Like, invite other people from your life to talk about it. Like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm not satisfied with this. I'm bothered by this. And I'm really tempted to just buy a new one. <laughs> or or switch careers, or upend this relationship. Bring in some wise people and talk about it. What's your instinct when discontent stirs? Just ignore it? (sighs) Deal with it later, deal with it later, deal with it later until it deals with you? Or to indulge it? Yeah, why not? Or to investigate it. And you see, when you investigate it, when you when you lift the hood on your discontent, then, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's where you can take all the truths of Jesus and apply them to the trouble that you're feeling. And that's what followers of Jesus do in the face of discontent. We take the things that we believe to be true because of Jesus and we apply them to our discontent. We apply them to our troubles. Because what you and I believe, if you're here as a Christian, what you and I believe is that Jesus has, has really, he has brought us back into the garden of yes. He's brought us back into the Garden of Eden. He's made the relationship between you and God right again. And he promises that that garden will come back in all of its fullness one day when he returns. But, but between now and then, there is, there is no issue between you and your maker. You are fully loved, fully embraced. You are part of his family, and he has a future guaranteed for you, and nothing is going to take that from you. Absolutely nothing. It's all yours. You are back in the garden of, yes, everything is right. Right? And so in the face of discontent, your challenge is this, to take those truths and apply them to the trouble that you feel stirring in different areas of your life. What we do is we dig up discontent by its root and we look for doubt of God and and an empty desire for more. We dig it up by its root and we attack it with the promises of Jesus. So, so when, I, when I dig up the root of discontent and I'm, I'm tempted to say, well, maybe it's all up to me to make my life amazing and I can't trust God, can't trust anybody, so I just got to do my own thing and find my own way. Here's what I do. I dig that up and I say, you know what? God knows me. He has a plan for me. He loves me. He's making a way for me. Take truth and apply it to the trouble when I tempted to say that I am am just the sum total of all my mistakes. I have no value, I have no worth, or I have so much to be ashamed of. I'm a mess, and I don't deserve anything good. I say the maker of the universe loves me, and he knows me, and he cherishes me. No matter what wrong has been done by me, because of Jesus, all the problems are fixed, and I belong to him. I take the trouble and I apply the truth to it. That's what followers of Jesus do. We dig it up by its root. We see it through the lens of what Jesus has accomplished. We apply his truths to the troubles. Where is discontent stirring in your life? Where? And what's your impulse When it starts to stir. Do you ignore it? Do you indulge it? Do you investigate it? We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but for now, I just want you to wrestle with that question. Where might I be discontent, unhelpfully discontent, experiencing unholy discontent in my life, and what's my response? Investigate it. Doubt it a little bit. Find out what's at the center of it. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, apply the promises of your forgiveness and your blessing, and God's mercy, just how rich you are in the things that matter, apply those truths to that trouble you find. Let me end with this. Uh, this is a picture for me of, of deep spiritual contentment. If you know the story of, of, of Christian mission You probably have heard of the the man Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is one of the most famous missionaries that's ever lived, and he started what's called the China Inland Mission, which was one of the first Christian missions to head into mainland China. And he did some really groundbreaking and really breathtaking work to evangelize the Chinese people, which no one really had done up until the point where he went into China. And at one point in his ministry in China, he and his wife were, were struggling deeply financially to fund the mission. They didn't know if they were going to be able to stay. And so the story is told that Hudson Taylor went into his study and he, he was going to lock himself in his study until he figured out how to pay for the mission. And so what he did is he had this threefold process. He would, he would pray and then he would read the Bible and then he would check his ledger to see if any money had appeared. <laughs> <laughs> and then he would pray some more and then he would read his Bible and he would check his ledger and see if some money had appeared or if he'd figured out a solution. And he did this over and over again for hours. He would pray, then he'd read his Bible, and then he'd check his ledger. So hours passed, and eventually he left his study, and his wife was kind of standing there waiting anxiously. She said, So, what's going to happen? And he looked at his wife and he said, My dear, we have 27 cents and all the promises of God. What else do we need? Godliness with contentment is great gain.